Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Leonora Williamson. She's Nashville-based and the founder of Platinum Rule Advisors. She's also a lecturer in negotiation and corporate social responsibility at Vanderbilt University. We're going to talk a little bit about what the human capital component is in terms of business and family office operations and discuss a little bit about the intersection that goes on and where families can do better in terms of understanding their strengths within their people and how they can find others to help them get to their goals. Leonora, welcome aboard. Thank you, Frazier. It's an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to have this very important conversation with you. You come at a good time because I think uh, people are coming out of COVID, the markets are going crazy, and lots of people in the family wealth space have taken a lot of stock in what they do, both from an investment perspective, but also how they operate not only their businesses, but their family units themselves. So you're coming on at probably exactly the right time where people are, are emerging and trying to figure out where things are going right in the near future. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to this place. Sure. My professional background is out of undergraduate. I did M&A on Wall Street for a little while and then went back to business school, did my MBA. And out of MBA, I did management consulting at the Boston Consulting Group. I should say my Wall Street stint was at J.P. Morgan. After working in two different types of professional services, I decided I wanted to work in a company that made something. So I went to work for the Estee Lauder companies. Talk about an incredible family business where the founder, Mrs. Estee Lauder's legacy was very present throughout everything we did. Then, like many women, I left the workforce to focus on being a mom. And life took me from the Northeast, where I'm from, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where among other activities, some women, including your colleague Betsy Brown and I, looked around in 2013 and saw that there was an entrepreneurial ecosystem that was leaving women out of the conversation. And regardless of one's gender politics, that's not reflective of who's consuming goods and services in the US. So we decided to throw capital at the problem and we raised an angel investment fund for female-led companies across the Southeast. And the majority of our investors were women as well. So it was a really exciting time to bring women to the table from a capital raising perspective, as well as from an entrepreneurial perspective. For me personally, career trajectory-wise, that was the first time I had ever dealt with small companies. So J.P. Morgan, BCG, and Estee Lauder, all big companies. And the clients we served at J.P. Morgan and BCG were also big companies. So I started doing this work looking at startups and going on startup boards and realized that to be a successful angel investor, you're betting 100% on management teams because business plans pivot. We had portfolio companies who started with one thing and ended up in completely another line of business. And the common denominator in all of these was having the right team, interacting the right way, and secondarily having the right investors. So I began to become really fascinated by what are the secret ingredients that make a team function well, and kind of secondarily, 
how do you take someone who's a really effective entrepreneur and founder and make sure that they're also the right CEO for once a company gets bigger? So a lot of interest in these questions. Then as my girls got old enough, I have two daughters, and I believe that family and business are never separated. And we'll probably get to that when we talk about the family business coaching that I do. But I decided to really go back full time to the workforce. So I worked briefly for a software company. And then I decided to take a big risk and follow my heart, which has always been in working with people. And I pursued an executive coaching certificate. And I had a number of people scratch their heads and say, you didn't go to Princeton and Harvard Business School to become an executive coach. What gives? But I really wanted to do that because the older I got, the more I realized the only thing I've ever really cared about in my business career is people and how they work together. So I became an executive coach. And in the beginning, I was agnostic to the type of client that I would work with. But as time went on, it became clear that my niche lay in three areas. The first is with corporate leaders. So most of my clients are CEOs. I have a COO client right now, but C-suite mainly, or partners of private equity firms or venture capital firms. And then finally, and this is probably where my heart beats the fastest, is with leaders of family businesses. So why do I love working with family businesses so much? One important part of my background that I haven't addressed is that I come from a family with a business. So my family has a company that builds luxury motor yachts in Maine. It's called Sabre Yachts. And for most of my adult life, my dad was the CEO of that business. Now he stepped down and we have our first non-family CEO, which has been amazing because he's the new CEO is wonderful at what he does and he's a great fit with our family. And I serve on the board of our family's company. So I think the reason that the place I focus most in my career now is on family business coaching is because I'm from a family business. And when you gave your introduction, you said something that I thought was really insightful and important. You said, now you have a lot of family business owners taking stock of both their businesses, but the family systems around them. And that's exactly right. In family business, those two things are never separate. So that was a long answer to a short question, Fraser, but that's a little bit about my background and what I'm up to today. I should also just say, I do have this, I call it my side hustle that you alluded to, which is teaching at Vanderbilt. And I teach negotiation and corporate social responsibility to undergraduates there. And it's really, really fun because Gen Z is awesome. And I teach on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, and I leap out of bed with excitement on those mornings to be with my amazing students. I always find when I'm able to get in front of younger people, my eyes are wide open for the same reason you have. There's a lot of energy around it, but they bring a whole host of new ideas to things that me and my 47-year-old dotage, I can be <laughs> kind of rigid and it sort of breaks me out of patterns. I think that's a, it's not just a side hustle. It's a great sort of information gathering point and a great source of energy for what you do otherwise. Yeah, I think that's right. And before we started recording, you and I had a chat about golf, which we're both passionate about. So I sometimes use a golf analogy with my students. Part of the reason it's so energizing to be with them 
is on a good day, I'm teeing off from the ninth tee box, but maybe actually really the 10th. They're on the first tee box. They've got the whole round ahead of them. And the potential they have to do things is unlimited. And interestingly, because a lot of my students know that I do work with family businesses, many of them have come to me to talk about their own family businesses. So although it's not anywhere in my written job description at Vanderbilt, I've had the pleasure of having many offline conversations with students who might be Gen 2 or Gen 3 or Gen 4 even of a family business who are beginning to ask the questions about what it means to be a participant in that business. So if I could wave a magic wand and make a dream come true, I would be offering a family business class for students at Vanderbilt whose families have businesses. Part of the reason I'm saying that out loud is sometimes I find if you say something out loud and hold an intention around it, it actually comes true. And I couldn't imagine anything more fun than the intersection of family business, which you and I have talked about, with that energy that you so correctly identified about the future generation. So let's start with a, let's call it a case study or something like that, where a situation comes in front of you. How do you sort of get your arms around the totality of what's going on? You have to, in some ways, learn what the business is, definitely learn who the personalities are and take stock of their strengths and weaknesses. My guess is that you take in a lot of data and so on, but a big part of it is in the assessment of the people and the situation that's going on. How do you do that? What a great question, because you're right. There are so many moving parts. In a family business, if we were working on a typical family business engagement, and I partner with a firm in Chicago called LK Advisors to do a lot of this work. So when I say we, I mean my partners, Tom Levinson and Elizabeth Keefe in Chicago. So in a family business coaching engagement, the first thing to understand is what is, what are you dealing with? And you hypothesize that we use assessments to figure that out. And you're right. That's a big part of it. But we organize how we do family situational assessments through three really important lenses. And I want our listeners to be mentally drawing a Venn diagram on a blackboard as I talk through this. So the first circle of the Venn diagram is the business. What is the industry? How big? How many employees? Do you have family members working there or not? What is the health of the business? What does the balance sheet look like? The overall structure of the underlying business operations. Because as you know, there's no asset as wonderful for wealth creation than a business that's cash flowing dividends to family members. So if you want to make sure that that either continues for the long term or that you have an asset that sells well, the first thing is that the underlying asset has to be healthy. So step one, the first circle of the Venn diagram is understanding the business. And there are a number of tools that we look at to do that. But at the end of the day, it's not really rocket science, good review of financial statements and understanding who's in the business and doing 360 reviews and analysis of talent can give you a lot of information on the health of a business. So that's circle number one of our visual Venn diagram. Circle number two is the governance. And governance looks at a couple of things. One is who are the shareholders? Who owns the business? Is it very concentrated ownership in a certain 
certain generation of the family? Are there mechanisms to spread ownership out through different family members? So looking at the cap table, basically, and then also understanding what are the documents that govern the family business in terms of voting rights and the number of directors? Is this a family business with only family board members or are there outside directors? I see both and I see people argue passionately that a family business should have only family board members and I see other people argue just as passionately that independent fiduciary directors are really important as well. So what does the governance look like? And one of the questions that I've learned to ask as we're looking at this second circle of our Venn diagram, Fraser, is not only what does the governance look like, but interestingly, what do the family shareholders know about the governance? Because I can't tell you, I would say probably in more cases than not, shareholders don't actually know how much stock they have. They don't know what their voting rights are. And from a governance standpoint, family businesses can be really casual about the way they govern. And in some structures, that's okay. I Look, I would never say one size fits all. Every family business needs to have a really professional governance structure. But as generations become more dispersed and you have more shareholders, it becomes increasingly important. And if you're ever preparing for a liquidity event like a sale, it also becomes really important. So the time to work on tricky issues is when nothing is tricky. So if you're in a family business, if you're listening to this and you're in a family business where your governance is lax, but you're hoping someday down the road that you're going to have a liquidity event or have an asset you can pass on to future generations, it's probably not a bad idea to take a look at that circle number two of your Venn diagram, which is your governance. So business operations, governance, and the third part of the circle, which is the most sensitive, but the most important is the family system. In a family business, the same people sitting around the board table are sitting around the Thanksgiving table. And in a healthy family business, both those experiences should be positive. And that's not always the case. So when we go to that third circle of the Venn diagram, we begin to lean on the world of family system psychology and a lot of tools from human capital assessment, like executive coaching and team dynamics to begin to understand what's at play in this family system. And every family, if we think of Venn diagrams as circles that overlap, every family has a different pattern of overlap. I've seen families where those three circles are collapsed on each other. And the first thing we need to do in an engagement is pick them apart to just get clear about where boundaries are. And I've seen others where families have been very organized and proactive in keeping separation between those three circles. But the place to start on a family engagement is to look through those three lenses. And generally, there's a family member who's interested in driving this project. So you have a sponsor and you figure out from the sponsor who are the right stakeholders in all three of those systems. So who are the key managers from an operations standpoint? Who are the key advisors from a governance standpoint? And then who are the key family members, shareholders or members of the business or not? to help you paint a clear picture of what's going on. So tons to unpack there. You've got a three prism approach to analyzing and sort of getting your arms around the engagement. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is when you're brought on board and taking a look at these things, 
what happens if you don't have full buy-in or is it usual that most people have within the structure, either at the governance level or at the family level, there's some buy-in in the concept that either there needs to be an assessment to understand where they are, or there's been some sort of strategic decision to say, okay, the business needs to be, you know, maybe for lack of a better word, professionalized or have structures put in place to get it ready for a transition. Or maybe there's been some sort of trauma, maybe in a death in the family that was unexpected or something like that, and that changes things. What happens though if, if the organization, business and family, et cetera, come to you, and it's not quite so unanimous in the goals that they have? What a great question, Fraser. because I've never seen an engagement where a family is all on the same page for the goals that they have. And if they were, they probably wouldn't need our help. So what you ask is not a hypothetical question. It's actually the case every time. And often in doing this kind of work, I go to two places. One is my experience teaching negotiation. So negotiation is just working through other people to get what you want. And so one of the first things that we do is make sure that we understand everybody's point of view in the system. And one of the big revelations in doing this work is that very often people want the same things. And where the differences lie is either in varying opinions on how to get there, or historical relationship breakdowns and tensions that might need to be cleaned up before you can get people swimming the same direction from a business standpoint. And that's where that third circle of the Venn diagram really comes in. And why a lot of family advisors love working with us, frankly, because we have no fiduciary interest. We're not managing any assets. We don't take the place of lawyers. We're not lawyers. And I would never advise a client on what their governance should be. We're simply there to understand what everybody in the system thinks and wants and leverage a lot of coaching skills and expertise to help them negotiate what the right answer is. And often we bring in advisors like estate attorneys or financial advisors to help inform that. But I have never started an engagement knowing what the right answer for a family is, because to your point, I never know what tensions are going to be uncovered. But what I know is that in order for a family who has a business to get to a place where there's some alignment, it's never going to be perfect because people are people. But you have to begin with what we call in coaching the beginner's mind, which is assuming that you don't actually know what's going on for people. And you have to ask and participate in active listening and then use negotiation and coaching skills to bring people together to find areas of agreement. Because again, most players in the system of a family business ultimately want the same thing, which is for the business to do well. One of the things that I talk about to a lot of folks is the difference between ownership succession and operational succession. And you talked about your personal example with Sabre, where you've got a new experience with an outsider who is now CEO and really taking on a lot of the operational components or operational leadership, obviously within the context of the family. And that to me is an area that is where the family as a whole, the business has been grown by a patriarch or matriarch. And those two, that Venn diagram has a lot of overlap to it. And when you start to separate that out, that is, that's where the family business really has its first major sense of tension in many cases. How do you think about that? And then to the next extent, when you've got talent within the family, 
how do you groom them or otherwise identify whether or not they should take on the role of managing the business part of it going forward, where that part of the Venn diagram maybe overlaps more than in other situations? So I think there are two questions in what you said, and I'm going to answer them in this order, if that's okay. The first is, what has the experience been like for us having a non-family CEO? And I'm happy to talk about that a little. And then the second is, just in general, how do you think about bringing family members into the operations of a family business? Did I hear those questions correctly? Yes. Okay. So in the case of our family, we've been really lucky. My father was the patriarch who was running the business for a long time. And I'm one of four siblings. And interestingly, it wouldn't have worked for any of us to take over the business. So two of my sisters aren't in the field of business at all. My brother has a career in the finance industry, not based in Maine, which is where our company is. And I live in Nashville and will stay here because my children's father is in Tennessee. So for us, a lot of the reason there was no kind of next generation to take over operations is because from a geography standpoint, none of us are in the right place. But more importantly, I would argue that if someone had been doing a beauty contest between me, my brother, and the CEO that we have, somebody really strategically looking at who's the best manager for our family's business would have picked the CEO we have today because he's trained in boat building. He's trained in engineering. He's got a whole raft of competencies that no one in my family has. So what really is the best thing for the business? It's absolutely for Aaron to be its CEO, and he's doing an incredible job. He also worked with my dad for a long time to retain the culture of the company. So we're a manufacturing company in rural Maine. So we need a lot of highly skilled laborers. And it's really important that the community knows that we treat our people really, really well with good healthcare benefits and other things, because otherwise we would lose our ability to attract talent and already attracting talent is hard. So in our family, there's a unanimous feeling that we have exactly the right person running the company right now. So from an operation standpoint, in our case, there wasn't tension in that passing of the baton, which isn't to say that other families don't have that. Just in our case, we were really lucky. So that's question one. Question two, how do you think about bringing family members into the business, particularly if it's someone young who's being groomed for leadership? Because that's often a scenario you see in a family business. So there are a couple of best practices that I would encourage anyone with a family business to think about if they haven't. The first is, what is the policy on family members entering the business? And the policy is best formed at a time when there are no family members thinking of entering the business, because then it's clearly an objective set of criteria that aren't being tailored to accommodate any particular family member. So some of the things that companies require is that a family employee go work somewhere else first. I have a client with a family-owned business, and they ask all of the family members entering to go work for a couple of years. They're in the retail business to go work at another retailer to get their chops in a place where the last name means nothing. So that's one model. The other thing is you need to decide when you bring someone, a family member into a business, what level of seniority are you going to place them in? Are you going to start them at the bottom of the pyramid and have them work their way up? 
which often has great results in terms of gaining credibility and building relationship with employees of the company? Or are you going to say, look, the person who's running the company right now is 60 and only has five more years of working. We've got to get this young person into a senior management role right away so they can learn. Any of those models is okay, but it's being intentional about how you set that up. And then once you've brought the family member into the role, it's being really clear about performance metrics. Should the performance metrics be the same as for other employees? Should family members have more lax standards or should they be held to higher standards? And like anything in family business, there's no one size fits all, except that owners of family businesses and managers of family businesses should be having these conversations so that there's clarity and consistency. So I think about it a lot with the two C's of clarity and consistency. Those are the silver bullets for bringing family members into the business. It strikes me too that many times the wreckage of families from a wealth perspective and then ultimately in the family business perspective too comes in in that communication. Uh, Those two C's, they have to get out. That information has to get out to certain family members. And it sounds like the idea of having a policy ahead of time as to how communication is disseminated amongst family members is a good way to build that context so that the why of the decision-making corresponds with the actual decisions that are made and it reduces the potential for baggage going forward. That's exactly right. And that's why we look at family businesses through this triad of lenses. So if you think about it, hiring decisions are firmly in the territory of business operations. And when you're writing those policies, you probably need to look next door to the family system to see who actually are the people who might be affected by this going forward. And you also need to look at the governance system to see, is there anything in the governance that's going to stop you from properly implementing this policy? And so understanding not only where certain decisions reside. So for example, I would argue the board of a family company shouldn't be making decisions about the hiring criteria for family members. I would argue that that's firmly in the court of senior management, but it's all interconnected in a family business. And the important thing for family businesses is to be working with people who understand those subtleties and when it's appropriate to be looking through which lens, because for most families at the end of the day, The goal is to have a successful business and a happy family. And I mentioned working for Estee Lauder before, and I would would say that Estee Lauder is the OG of well-run family businesses. (laughs) Yeah, I would too. For many years, Leonard Lauder, who's one of my personal heroes, was at the helm of that business. He recently published a book called In Good Company. And one of the opening lines in that book is there are two things that can bring down a family business, the family or the business. And I think that's just brilliant. It simplifies all the dynamics that are in play here. So anytime you have the family and the business overlapping, people making those decisions and thinking through those issues need to be extremely sensitive and extremely careful. We could talk for probably four hours on this subject because I think there's so many things to sort of push through. As we start to think about winding down here, you're seeing a lot of different trends in the workplace as it relates to family businesses dealing with diversity and inclusion and taking advantage of the positives that that brings to actual economic returns. Then you're also dealing with families who, you know, may have 
people who are at the top who are dealing with sort of the pluses and minuses of work from home. What are the things that you're seeing trend-wise that family businesses in particular should keep an eye out for or maybe take advantage of? Let me start by talking about the diversity and inclusion lens and begin by saying that to me, diversity and inclusion initiatives and companies are not political decisions that any company is making. That even if your sole interest, if you're a Milton Friedman diehard loyalist and you believe that the shareholder is the only stakeholder to consider in a company, you still need to care about diversity and inclusion. So the reason is, as you alluded to, diverse teams yield better returns. And I read a study actually just this morning that diverse teams where diversity means racial diversity and gender diversity, as well as age diversity, on average yield financial returns that are 25% better than non-diverse teams. And gender diverse teams alone yield 15% better returns. So gender politics or other sort of racial politics and other things that are legitimately very big topics of conversation today don't play into the return argument for caring about diversity and inclusion. And as such, I've seen companies whose leadership covers really the range of political opinions caring a lot about this topic. So trend number one is that diversity and inclusion is everywhere. So I also happen to have a belief that it's the right thing to care about. And it's been really interesting to me thinking about this question through the lens, actually, of my new Vanderbilt class on corporate social responsibility, where I went to the department chair and said, we should be talking about this. Diversity and inclusion is one of many things that we talk about in addition to sustainability and other topics. But specifically on diversity and inclusion, younger generations, millennials and particularly Gen Z, are demanding that we work in ways that are inclusive and address diversity. So just a practical example, I would never start a new class with introductions with students without asking them what pronouns they use. Because as a matter of fact, not everybody uses the pronouns he and she. You've got many people who are choosing to identify with the pronoun they. Like you, I'm 47. That was not something that we ever talked about or even knew about when we were growing up. But when you ask people in younger generations what inclusion means to them, it's not only that it be okay that they use a pronoun to self-identify, but also that other generations know to ask what pronoun they use. And when I look at some of the companies where I work that are doing this really well, they're bringing, so I would say trend number two is that younger generations care. So trend number one is diversity and inclusion are everywhere. Trend number two is that younger generations really care. And by the way, millennials are 51% of the workforce today. So that math would tell you that over half the workforce takes this really seriously. The third thing that I see is for a long time, companies have had a history of keeping initiatives like diversity and inclusion as a separate thing from their operations. So you might have the core operations of a company, and then you have a team thinking about diversity and inclusion over to the side. And what I'm seeing is a tremendous merging of diversity and inclusion initiatives into operations. So an example is one of my clients is a big Fortune 500 company, and they have over 150,000 employees. 
And for 2021, every employee in their goal setting process, which you can imagine with that many employees is pretty organized. Every single employee has to have a goal for how they're going to push diversity and inclusion in their organization. That was groundbreaking to me. I had never seen that before. So that points to the third trend, which is an increased merging of diversity and inclusion into business operations. And the final trend is that Governance structures are beginning to catch up. So yesterday in my Vanderbilt corporate social responsibility class, I had a guest speaker, Paul Cusero, who's the CEO of Emeticis, a publicly traded company in Nashville. And they're in the home healthcare business. And he put up a slide that looked at his customer base that said that a quarter of his customer base are people of color and the majority of his customers are women. And he had a board that was nine people with eight males and one woman and no people of color. And so he spent the past three years overhauling his board. So now it's five women and four men and 11% people of color, which if you do the math on nine people is one person of color. But he's actively looking to have the composition of his board mirror that of his customers. He's been written up a lot in a very positive way for having made that governance shift. But he's not alone in making sure that from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, the governance of his company begins to look like his customer base. So those are the four main trends. Well, and that last one in particular, that's something that family businesses, as they start to look ahead as to what they want to be in 5, 10, 25 years, those are lessons that will be important to them going forward. Absolutely. When they're looking through that governance lens, because if they're recruiting governance only from the family lens, you know, from the family bucket, by definition, they're not going to have diversity. To come back to that argument I mentioned before, which argues for the hiring of independent directors. Leonora, thank you so much. We are running out of time and I know you've got a busy day ahead of you, but what is the best way for our listeners to keep track of you? There are two ways. One is to follow Platinum Rule Advisors on LinkedIn. And the second is to subscribe to our newsletter. And there's a link to that on our website, www.platinumruleadvisors.com. I will have all that on the show notes. So people will be able to find it there as well. Leonora, thank you so much for your time and great stuff. Frazier, thank you so much for having me. I really could keep talking to you about this all day, but I appreciate the chance to talk to you for a few minutes. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Likewise, we'll have you back on. There's a lot more to cover. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.